And now, coming to you live from the Gershman Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Kim Stanley Robinson on the Coot Street Podcast! As Jonathan fades into the distance, welcome, Stan. Um, I'm Great, glad to have Gary. You Thank you, Gary. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Good Stan. to be back. Great to have you here. And congratulations on New York 2140. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. It's a wonderful book. I just finished reading it last week. Well, thank you for reading it. It's a monster. And well, it didn't seem didn't seem like a monster to me. I mean, I I read it some time ago, uh, and it's getting great reviews. But I think the thing that surprised is surprising a lot of people about the book is that it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, God damn it, it better be fun. It's a novel. <laughs> well. Um, it's a novel about what, in most scenarios, is a horrible catastrophe. Manhattan is flooded. It's flooded up to the thir- several floors up in, in, in the skyscrapers. And one of the characters in the novel says, and I mentioned this in my review, New York is more interesting than it's ever been. And that's pretty much true. You kind of – it's a horrible disaster, but you kind of want to be there. Yes, yeah. yes. This is a delicate balance, I have to say, that I, a tightrope that I tried to walk in that if there really were uh, sea level rise, that's that uh, extreme, which is possible at the uh, – right while I was writing the book, there was this paper from James Hansen and 18 co-authors that suggested that we're headed for that, uh, which is you know more than we ever thought before. Uh, it will be a disaster. It will be a catastrophe. There will be a refugee crisis. There will be all kinds of problems like a poisoned uh, coastline and and uh, bad trouble for the world economy and for agriculture and for people. So um, it is a bad scenario in that sense. But the the thing is that I wanted to make a couple of points that um, after it's over and the sea level stabilizes for a while, a few decades, say, people are going to be coping with it. They are going to be living their lives, and they will only occasionally pause to curse their idiot ancestors, and mostly they will be living lives like uh, life is normal, and they'll be coping. So I wanted Mm -hmm. to do the kind of comedy of coping. And then also I wanted New York to turn into Venice because I love Venice and I love New York, and – New York is right at sea level, and there is going to be some sea level rise. And it's one of those science fiction thought exercises that you that you can't help but pursue once it once it strikes you. Well, I guess one of the things that uh, you know, that comes to mind uh, is looking back to the looking back to what happens to Washington D.C. in the, in, the, in the science and the capital trilogy, and and that began, and that's, that's what. 15 years ago now? Is it that long ago? Yeah. Um, okay, wow. So that using using the projections and the science of that time, there was a lot of cautionary tale in that. In other words, there were actual policy decisions. There was a question about what to do about uh, the Gulf Stream if it shuts down. There, there was a sense in that of, of, of urgency, of political – I don't know, um, not – of an awful warning, at least, and the awful things happened to Washington. And although now I wish those things would happen to Washington right now, now that I think about it, 
Yeah. But, the, but but this novel doesn't seem to be an awful warning. This novel, and I've seen this not only with your fiction, but with other uh, what we call climate change fiction, whatever, that more and more it's not something we can avoid. Well, it, we've already started it. And so um, there will be some coping to be done. It's not tr- truly avoidable in the sense of we can dodge climate change because we've already initiated it. And there's path dependencies such that we're still burning a lot of carbon. And the parts per, mi- uh, mil- parts per million range, you know, which is at 400 parts per million now of CO2, it's likely to uh, go to somewhere before between 450 and and 500 before we manage to cap it, and that will be enough to raise temperatures and things mm-hmm. will change. So, given that situation, the in terms of my own work, and that's really all I can speak for, the DC novels were um, about Washington DC and therefore about the federal government. Like, what can right. we do about this? Whereas you get up to New York and what you get is the finance industry saying, how can we profit off of this? Um, They won't be concerned with um, ameliorating the situation. They'll be concerned with making money out of it. So uh, and I I wanted to explore that as well as just um, talk about what it's like. Because really, the difference between my Washington novel and my New York novel in terms of the time being described is nearly 100 years. And that right. will be uh, an important 100 years for changing people's attitudes and, and their situation even. Do you think that writing a book that is a comedy of coping, as you call it, is important in attempting to combat the despair of the Anthropocene? I do. And I also think that there's something bad going on in terms of apocalyptic thinking of people thinking, well, we can't solve this problem. So let's just give up and let's think about zombies, which are a kind of a symbol of how we feel right now. Um, We're walking dead. Uh, It would be nice if we could kill these problems with machine guns and baseball bats and feel good about it. But mm-hmm. when when you yourself are the, the – when your pension is the zombie, uh, killing it with a machine gun is, is extremely ineffective. And so our symbology right now is extremely screwed up. It's, it's negative. It's apocalyptic. It's thinking, you know, after us, the deluge, so let's just party. It's a kind of giving up to think those lines in the science fiction slash fantasy you know, in the world of Fantastica to try to project futures that are always in this um, it's all over vein is is wrong, I think. And but also it gives me an opportunity to do something different, which is indeed the comedy of coping that um, people aren't going to be killing zombies. There are no zombies. They mm-hmm. are going to be dealing with the inner title where Um, it's a completely messy zone for 10 blocks and nobody knows if people own the actual ground. And so they don't know if they own the buildings. They don't know if the buildings are assets or liabilities. Um, They don't know how much to value them. They don't know how much to charge the insurance company for them. Mm -hmm. And it becomes simply a a financial mess that is similar to now. So there's a kind of a, uh, you know, opportunities for romantic comedy and, and opportunities for black comedy of, of finance trying to profit even in the midst of all these horrible problems. Well, you made it convincing enough to me. 
I was going to say, that sort of points to the villain of New York 2140, because really the the villain of New York 2140 is capitalism, isn't it? Yes. There's no doubt about it. Um, I think that um, you can use the the Paul Ehrlich uh, equation that our human impact on the Earth um, uh, equals population times appetite times uh, technology and the what that helps is to de-strand the problem um to, we've got good technology already if we were to make a civilizational effort to deploy decarbonized tech and pay for it properly we could be decarbonized in uh, 10 years it's quite amazing the tech already exists then in terms of population um population keeps rising wherever women don't have their full rights wherever women have their full rights population stabilizes so mm. we've got a, a social solution there that has been proved demographically already so this isn't just a utopian statement this is a statement of already existing historical fact that um there's a great double good to be uh, found in uh, women's rights all around the world because it stabilizes population growth so in the middle sits appetite, and and I think Ehrlich basically missed the the name there. Um, I think he first called it affluence, but you know Thoreau teaches us that you can be affluent with very little. It's a state of mind, and right. so what like uh, Ehrlich I think changed it to appetite, or I changed it. I'm not sure, but now I'm thinking what it really means is economics. That we've got an economic system that poorly values everything. And it particularly discounts the future. It it puts enormous pressure on humans and on the environment, on labor. It, you, they would call it in economic terms. And the environment are are both grossly devalued, and we pay less for them than they're actually worth. So um, what my novel tries to do is show this in tangible ways and give a kind of a plot of world revolution where you overthrow the currently existing global financial system and put it to the good of of humanity and the planet so there's a there's a revolutionary utopian history in this book that is sort of hidden at the end of the romantic comedy well it's also hidden in the you, you've got these rosencrantz and gildenstern characters uh, <laughs> who, who and one of the things, one of the first things I thought is, how many people under the age of fifty are going to even recognize the names Mud and Jeff? Um, I know. I get lots of questions about that. I, I imagine that's true, but 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 they're but but they're they're, they're they're comic support, but they're also the theorists of capitalism and economics, and they and the novel opens and closes with these guys who are yeah. just delightful characters. Um, and uh, it's um, and, and then you have you know, you have the real estate mogul who is specializing in intertidal real estate. Uh, we should mention some of the other characters. We have an idealistic web star who uh, is determined to rescue polar bears using her airship. And you, you mentioned the sort of comedy of errors. There's screwball comedy in this too. There's a yeah. scene in which the polar bears get loose in the airship. Yes, there is. There is. I, I was. I was pretty happy when that scene occurred to me. <laughs> it was uh, Amelia is a, a hoot, and I love her, and she is indeed the the person that gets angry enough to trigger the whole situation, being a, a gigantic YouTube star. Right. And I thought I thought that would be funny too. That 
uh, everybody who cares about this situation has the ability to do something about it, uh, mm-hmm. even if they even if they look marginal or if they look like entertainment only. As Brecht and Aristotle pointed out, the difference between entertainment and education is very, very, very thin. They they often melt completely into each other if you do it mm-hmm. right. And so I had a great time with Amelia. And when the polar bears get loose on her airship and take it over, it was <laughs> it was a great joy to me to try to figure out the stage business. And here I would I would think to myself, what would Ian Banks do with this situation? You know. <laughs> Banksy was the greatest writer of stage business of of uh, physical action in the real world that we ever had, and uh, so I, I came up with my solution, and I think it's a good one. But yeah, the the all of the characters from Mutt and Jeff through Franklin and Amelia, and really everybody. I mean, Charlotte actually gets angry enough to run for Congress, et cetera, right. et cetera. They all get involved in the macro plot of trying to. Uh, impact history. So it has that element to it, uh, along with all the others. But it also rejects that idea that pops up in science fiction, or it seems to me, to me, of any one person or group of people solving the problem. This is something that requires a community, a culture to address. I mean, in a particular kind of science fiction novel, it seems to me, when uh, Mutt and Jeff, at the very beginning of the book, launch their coded attack on capitalism... It's not, you know, you th- there's, there's a kind of book where that would have solved the problem, if you like. It would have been a group of loners overcoming everything. But this really is a, a situation of a community having to take on the problem, isn't it? Yes, yes. And thank you for that. I, the, I wanted to show that the Mutt and Jeff solution, which is kind of the Silicon Valley libertarian uh, silver bullet of if we just wrote the right code, um, we could change everything, you know, uh, and we could make money at it, too. This is really I mean, in England, they sometimes call this the California um, uh, philosophy, which I find irritating, um, <laughs> even though Sil- Silicon Valley is in um, California. But California is way, way bigger than Silicon Valley itself and that particular narrow view. So what I what my characters say, what Mutt even says to Jeff, because I, I read this chapter aloud last night at a reading in my hometown bookstore, um, you're just doing graffiti. You you just tried to make a hack. It's like writing graffiti on a wall. They can take it down. They can spray it over. You can mm-hmm. just counter code. So this is a, a nonsense solution. This is a non-solution that tries to dodge politics. And what Mutt says is we're not talking about code here. We're talking about laws. And laws are made by legislatures, and legislatures, therefore, are a political process. And it's a very depressing – I mean, Jeff just can't stand this solution because, mm. in, you know, in America, it kind of points you to trying to make the Democratic Party do the right thing and trying to make sure that you actually win the national elections through the, the – because you only have a two-party system. And if they both represent the same business class, then you're screwed, which is why people got so angry. Um, so uh, that's a depressing piece of news, but it's also, I think, r- realistic to say we've got to change the laws. That takes politics, and then politics takes people. And what you need, I think, is a story told that describes the situation that everybody agrees describes it accurately enough that they'll go ahead and take political action based on that story. And so this is what I've been trying for is, uh, among many other stories, this one is trying to tell the story of 
what happened in the 2008 crash? What's going on with global capitalism? And how could, how could we do a kind of a judo turn on that and get it back to, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people, which is a very endangered idea right now? Although this novel, like the Science in the Capital trilogy, ends with the idea that there might be sane, reasonable, fairly liberal-minded people elected to office, um, which well, yeah, I well, I wrote, have, the DC, I wrote the DC novel before uh, Obama got elected, so it was a gesture in the depths of the uh, Bush years when I was right. extremely, extremely angry, and. Um, um, well, the the New York novel is written at the end of the Obama years when I didn't have the slightest, slightest right. belief that uh, Trump would become president. So um, I was assuming that we would be going at these problems soon and in a rational way. And now I I realize that um, it wasn't as simple as as I thought. And, and I'm not the only one that was fooled by this recent election, I know, uh, but I, I, I must say it was a big shock and I've had to, uh, my, my current formulation of, of what's going on here is the dead cat never bounces very high. <laughs> so if, if Trump is some kind of dead cat bounce, we can hope that in two years or four years, um, you know, he'll be out of there and we'll be back to uh, trying to solve problems. The the one thing that's happening right now that's making me extremely crazy is this this jerk that he has in at the EPA, Scott oh. Pruitt, saying we should oh, we should leave we should leave the Paris Agreement. If if we were to try to leave the Paris Agreement, I would I would hope that um, the American public would freak out because I think the Paris Agreement is one of the most important treaties in human history, and that we have to stick with it. And luckily, the exit. The process is like longer than four years, so hopefully yeah. this will not happen. But it is a scary moment when somebody in power says something that stupid. I my my, my theory on that is because it's been borne out by the last several weeks is that by and large the major corporations and the people with lots of money are perfectly happy with the Paris Accords. And as soon as they say we want to stay in, then the ideology... The one thing about the current administration is ideology goes out the window as soon as there's money involved. Um, yes. Yes. Which, I, which, I, which, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm comforted by that. I, I, it's just that... Um, and and really, uh, Pruitt is such an outlier that I think he may go down like uh, like Bannon, and um, and most of the EPA is is extremely angry at him and trying to ignore him and subvert him. So um, it's just one of the many ugly moments where you don't really want to read your paper in the moment the, in the morning these days. Well, do you get do you get treated as a futurist? I mean, there, Bruce Sterling is making a career as a futurist more than as a fiction writer now. And the reason I ask that, poor guy. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but go ahead. Well, I, 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 do you ever worry that somebody could read New York twenty one forty and 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 you figured out how to make money on intertidal real estate and some Jared <laughs> Kushner reads the novel and saying that's not a bad idea. I'd better start doing that now. The I tell you, I worked my butt off on the intertidal property pricing index. I had to, um, yeah, I had to educate myself in those elements of finance and get some help from professionals on how such indexes work. Where an index is a single number trying to describe a complex situation, and it often is a science fiction number. 
in that it's trying to tell you what's going to happen a month from now or 10 years from now. So that's how indexes work. And it was funnier than hell to work on because it's completely <laughs> science. It's bogus. It, there are many decisions in every index that are completely non-scientific, non-technical, not required by physics. They are uh, ethical uh, positions being taken, usually bad ethics of let's privilege us right now over the people yet to come who can't defend their own interests. I'm curious. New York 2140 is fairly you know, recently in the world. How have you felt about the response from the science fiction community to the book, and particularly to the idea that there were simple solutions that could have been you know, used to avoid the situation in the novel, and that it's just not a realistic uh, forecast of a future? I, I, I've seen a lot of reviews. They've been almost entirely positive. They've, it's been a lot of fun. It it seems to me that it depends, um, um, as one of my friends said to me, it depends on whether people uh, take to the, the citizen or not. If you like the citizen, then New York, uh, the New York novel is going to be unmitigated fun because there's a lot of him and the story itself is kind of a romp. Um, the, if, you, if the citizen comes across as, as too sarcastic, because he is a New York sarcastic mm. son, son of a bitch who is a know-it-all and um, a smartass. So uh, if that grates against you, then you're in trouble in this book. But I haven't seen responses out of the science fiction community proper. They're mostly out of blogs by general readers and various kinds of um, media that are um, everything but literary and science fiction. So, you know, Scientific American or Business Week or Bloomsburg or New York Magazine, these are great venues for people who are just regarding it as a, a book about New York mainly, which is fine by me. There are those who might say that, you know, if, when you look at sort of science fiction, at least in part in its history, as a fiction of, you know, where you come up with a simple technological fix that maybe the situation in New York 2140 could have been avoided by chemically treating the atmosphere, boof, all done, and then we can move on, this isn't a problem. How do you respond to that kind of an idea? Well, that doesn't work for sea level rise. What, what Hansen's 2016 paper shows is that um, back in the EMEAN, there was just a one degree Celsius global temperature rise, and then there was 15 meters of sea level rise following that in the following century. It was shocking and um, controversial because it's a complicated scientific case to be made. But uh, we've already done the one degree uh, temperature rise, and so if things begin to slide into the sea and sea, uh, and sea level begins to rise because of Antarctic ice, we cannot stop that with any fooling around in the atmosphere with any geoengineering. Now, it's true that the Potsdam Institute in Germany made a calculation, which I loved because it's straight out of the DC, my DC novels where I considered it to be a crazy idea, that we pump seawater back up to the top of the Antarctic ice cap or to um, basins, dry basins in Eurasia and, and put a stash water there that would keep sea level from rising. Well, the Potsdam Institute said that, yeah, we could do it. It would only take 20% of all of the electricity that humanity produces. So <laughs> I found that really shocking. I would have, if you'd asked me to guess, I would have said less than 1%. But, you know, water's heavy. The Antarctic yeah. uh, ice cap is 10,000 feet high. And there's a lot of it. To actually raise sea level worldwide, that is a lot of water. I mean, you, 
in, until you see Antarctica, you, you can't quite believe the figures. But of course, when you see Antarctica, you see a continent that's as big as the United States and Mexico combined. And it's a stack, uh, a cake of ice that's 10,000 feet thick. And it, then it begins to make sense. Right. Um, and so the numbers do work out and the calculations are being made. And so I would challenge any of these science fiction, oh, we can solve that one. <laughs> sea level rise, <laughs> along with ocean acidification, is really the, the unstoppable. I, I, I don't think it's uh, – I don't think uh, – I've not heard anything from, from science fiction people about this. Uh, you're challenging one uh, kind of trope in science fiction uh, in that – you could describe – I could, I will describe New York 2140 as, as a kind of survival fiction, which is not survivalist fiction. So mm-hmm. you don't have these roving bands of, of, uh, of, of thugs that go all the way back at least to Wells's <laughs> shape of things to come. Yeah, but, you're yeah. not, but, what, but, but at the same time, you're not, you're not challenging one of the cherished tropes of science fiction like you did in Aurora. Aurora did upset some people because you were saying, we can't write science fiction like that anymore because it doesn't work. I know. I got hammered for that. <laughs> yeah. L- looking back, how do you feel about that experience? Well, I was, I was irritated intensely by some of my fellow colleagues who attacked the book in ways that I thought that the book had defended itself so that they were lying about the actual text. Mm. Now, um, I thought, oh, my God, that's unfair. You know, God would if, – if we were in a debate in front of God and God was the judge, they would get punished for a lie that bad. But, of course, there is no God and we aren't we – aren't, <laughs> we're out there in the world of the internet and they got away with it and there's no way that I can respond. And ultimately, I had to think to myself, you know, Stan, you wanted people angry. You took a, a science fiction idea that's like this beautiful – the plastic model of the USS Enterprise and you took out your baseball bat and you smashed it to smithereens and you did it on purpose. So mm-hmm. when people, when people are mad enough to even be unfair in their responses, I had to let it go. I had to realize, uh, it would have been a little disappointing to have everybody say, Oh yeah, another novel, who cares? Um, cause I, I wanted to make a point and if that was going to make some people angry, um, what I didn't understand until afterwards is that for some people this going out into the galaxy is a replacement for religion for immortality religions and in a way it's a religion itself um even if you are going to die your dna could maybe spread through the whole galaxy well this is a kind of immortality that uh if you don't believe in ordinary religions you could still believe in that and then you have some kind of comfort in that part of your brain that is built to have religious feelings and response to that stuff. So I was literally being an iconoclast. I broke an icon. And people don't like iconoclasts. So it's all good. I, I came out of the Aurora experience um, um, irritated, but after I thought it through, I thought, okay, the book meant to do that. It's It will remain a permanent um, voice uh, statement in the discussion, you know. Um, that goes on about about the fate of humanity and and so Aurora did its job and but the thing is it was also depressing it was like a prison novel to write um, the mm. fact that I got any people out of that story alive was a, it took quite a bit of um, <laughs> right. hand waving and so um, when I was done with it I thought man I want some fun I want a comedy I want people and I thought of New York as Venice. 
um, partly, partly by the help of my editor, Tim Holman. Mm. Um, I, I said to him, I want to write a book about global finance. And he said, oh, God, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and, and I said, but I want to anyway, Tim. You know, you know me. And he thought about it for a while. And he said, well, could you put it in the drowned New York of 2312, which had been a brief set piece. Right. And, I, and I said, wow, that is a great idea. Um, and it, so it was really Tim's idea or Tim's suggestion. And so and what it, it gave me the chance to have a lot of fun. What, what, what response are you getting from New Yorkers? Because I've been in Madison Square Park and I've probably been in the MetLife building, which is based on a building in Venice, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, that's why I chose it. Yep. Okay. It looks like the Campanile of uh, San Marco Plaza. That's the, the architect used the, the Campanile as a, as a model. So that was perfect for my purposes. It made a joke. And also, uh-huh. because, because we're science fiction people, if you've been to the tour offices, um, yeah. Tom Doherty's office is at the, the skinny tip of the Flatiron building. So you're right. also looking down on Madison Square and over to the old MetLife Tower. So um, it has a science fiction resonance, and it's a beautiful square. I, I spend a lot of time there now, and I think of it as my square. It's extremely <laughs> silly. Um, but it gives me a lot of uh, sentimental warmth towards New York, which, I, you know, I used to be amazed by New York, but I never had the kind of affection for it that I do now. And New Yorkers have been pretty good. I mean, Ira Flato grew up in the in the far parts of Queens, he told me, and um, he read the book and liked it and had me on Science Friday. And um, most of the New Yorkers I know are are either indifferent to the idea of anybody writing about New York or else they're perfectly positive and think it's a fun idea. Well, you really had to go and fall in love with the city. You had to really walk it sort of foot by foot until you really understood where things were, didn't you? I did. I, I went with a tourist map that I had uh, transferred my, my new shoreline to, um, the 50-foot high, higher coastline, which cuts through lower mid-Manhattan. And the thing is, the tides in the New York Bay are 10 feet vertical. And that makes a huge difference in Manhattan because there are some hills, mild hills, some uphills and downhills, so that the intertidal between high tide and low tide is sometimes maybe 10 blocks and that would be a very messy 10 blocks. So I walked the streets of Manhattan, and I, looking down 6th Avenue, I, I, I thought of um, Stefan and Roberto skimboarding as the tide rose. You could <laughs> go skimboarding right down the middle of 6th Avenue, and um, this was physically walking around and looking at the city. And also, my good friend Eileen drove me around and showed me things that you couldn't get to on public transport very easily, like the cloisters or... Um, Astoria, where you see um, the place where the HMS Husser hit Pot Rock, or out to Coney Island even, you know, where you see Coney Island. Uh, I went around to odd places, and I really did fall in love with the city. It's it's a physically beautiful space, uh, the bay, and then the built infrastructure is, is stupendous and uh, amazing. It's really Asimov's Trantor. Um, uh, as we know, that's what Asimov considered to be utopia itself was uh, Trantor yeah. uh, is is a Manhattan planet. So right. um, I and I walked around in Central Park and I walked around everywhere. It was it was um, I was just there, of course, for the launch for the book. And I was thinking, will I still enjoy this city, or is it like an affair that ov- that is over because I've written the book? And uh, it was a little of both. I. I still enjoy the city. I feel a great affection 
but the feeling of being on the hunt of of looking up my my sentences and 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 seeing what might happen in terms of scenes was was gone of course and that's just what happens well the thing that struck me and this is going to sound a little academic for a second uh, because I've I've never lived in New York, but I've spent enough time there to walking around it. And some of the novels that came to mind in reading this were people like William Dean Howells, The Hazard of New Fortunes, uh, people who were discovering New York in the 1880s and 1890s, the beginning of the finance industry. You had a lot of immigrants who were a lot like uh, your, your your kids in this one. Uh, who you know mm-hmm. would have been would have been, would have been immigrant kids? The idea of, maybe maybe this came to me because of the idea of a buried, a sunken treasure. I mean, heaven's sake, just Robert Louis Stevenson is in this novel. Uh, <laughs> you, you've got kids digging up. Uh, I gather a real wreck that may really have treasure in it. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, and um, you know, Stefan and Roberto, my my water rats, who are you know, about 10 years old and homeless and without parents, they are immigrants. Um, um, and um, it's a, the HMS Husser really did happen. And I first read about it in Robert Silverberg's book, Treasures Beneath the Sea, which was a kid's mm. book that he wrote in the late 1950s. And yeah, he was doing his, all those nonfiction things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Bob, he is a wonderful teller of stories and he told the story of, of all of the people who have hunted for the HMS Husser as New York maniacs. And as far as I could tell from my own studies of the situation, because it is a real story, the guy that spent most of the 1930s in a tiny one person submarine looking for the HMS Husser was about five miles away from where it oh, I know. I don't know how he managed to miscalculate so severely, but my feeling is that I can tell where it is because you can do a, a calculation of where it hit and then the tide motions and the speed of the of the water in Hellgate, and you pretty much can make a circle where it is. But the thing is, that is now underneath the South Bronx because uh-huh. they – they extended the South Bronx out into the river in order to make more dock space and more there's, there's now giant oil tanks right, right about where it is or nearby. So, um, very difficult to get to the HMS Husser right now. Uh, but there is a $2 million of gold coins and that's contemporary value. So I calculate that to be two to $4 billion worth of gold coins somewhere underneath the South Bronx. And, and of course you, it's true. So and it was have, too, it was too your, funny. <laughs> and, and another wonderful character, now that we're talking about it, these characters are coming back to me in a way that they usually don't in a novel I read sometime. Mr. Hexter is a kind of obsessive, wise old man. He's somewhere between Gandalf and a, and, and a, and a hoarder lunatic, I suppose. <laughs> Yes. And yet he's, he, he's, he's done all the research to find out where the Husser might be. And he has this obsessive collection of maps which are in danger of being destroyed when his building topples over. Uh, yes, yes. The, the maps of Manhattan are superb. And uh, right uh, at the time that the Husser went down, the British Army was in control of Manhattan Island during the whole revolution. They were the best map makers in the world at that time. And they had nothing else to do. So there's a map of Manhattan Island from about 1780 or so that is right down to individual boulders and uh, creeks that are no longer there. And it's it's just a, a very, very beautiful vision of what the island was like before it got built. 
And and so Hexter, my character, is obsessed with all this stuff, and it was a perfect venue to talk about these mm-hmm. things. I'm curious. You can't write a book like this without putting yourself into it in some sense. What is the what part of the book is most you? Are you are you the citizen to some degree? Is that the part that uh, you identify with the most? No, I, and I wonder. I'm thinking about what you said, and. More and more, I am thinking that uh, as a novelist, what I like is the novels of mine where I'm most not there. Um, And it's been variable because I've done about 20 novels now. And in a couple of them, I've put myself and even my family and my friends uh, in as altered kinds of characters, which is a kind of a, a classic American novelist ploy. Um, but I, those are now becoming amongst my least favorite novels. And the ones where I'm most absent are the ones where I'm most happy. So, um, when I did my, uh, collaboration with Marina Abramovich, she had just finished her big show at New York's MoMA that was called the artist is present. And I used to joke with her that we were a good combination because she's the artist is present and I'm the artist is absent. And I like to be out of these stories. So in the New York novel, there's nobody that is anything like me. I feel like I'm gone. I feel like New York took over, and I'm very happy about that. It it feels, in a certain sense, sort of like The Years of Rice and Salt or some other books of mine where I'm I'm just not there. And it feels good. It feels like what a novel ought to do in some ways. And, of course, it goes against the, the Hemingway-Kerouac strain in in American mm. literature where you had to live it before you could write it and they would burn up their lives and live weird lives. Uh, Fitzgerald too, without um, having lived it, they couldn't write it authentically. But I think that's wrong. I think the novelist can easily be um, doing something out of their imagination that, that they themselves haven't uh, lived themselves. And in this case, I think that's the case that, that said the 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 citizen was weirdly easy to write, and I wonder if we all have an image of the New York smartass from movies, films, uh, TV shows, talking to one, um, print media. I don't know, but when it was late in the writing of the book, where I had, wrote the citizen chapters, and they were as easy as could be in a in an almost shocking way. There's uh, a kind of uh, it's a kind of journalistic. Um, insouciance about that that character that I think every city has one. I mean, I, I just happened to notice this morning, Chicago had a columnist named Mike Royko who died 25 oh, yeah. years. Yeah. And he was, he was Chicago's version. There's some yeah. of Jimmy Breslin in the citizen. There might yes. be some of Mencken in the citizen. Yes. Even- yes. Those are all perfect. Mencken, Baltimore and, and, um, um, uh, Breslin, New York and Royko, um, Chicago, these, uh, but also just the sports fan that is a maniac that has opinions about the Knicks and the Nets and the Mets and the Yankees and knows every player and knows the whole history of the team back forever and they want to tell you all about it and you're you're like oh my god this is too much <laughs> and and they don't realize that it's too much they're motor mouths and uh, I'm told that the audio book of New York 2140 which I haven't heard yet has the citizen has eight different voices for the eight chapters. Oh, really? Yeah, and that the citizen voice has a strong New York accent, and I just can't wait to hear it. 
I guess part of the reason, though, that it occurred to me is that you can't have your attitudes not seep through into the book. And at least one point I did stop and wonder because there's a point where there's a rather testy response to possible readers who may struggle with uh, too much exposition in the text that they were reading. And and I did wonder whether that was perhaps a little bit more directly signaled from your good self or not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to admit that the citizen is very aware of a certain novelist's irritations. Um, So, yes, yes, yes. There's a couple of moments that I, I laughed at a lot where the citizen talked about, you know, if you don't like expository lumps, go to the next chapter and, and leave me alone. You know, I'm going to print all the expository lumps in red print and, and I'm going to leave the, in- I'm going to leave the info dumps on your carpet. And he goes on and on like that in a most wicked way. And of course that does refer to, but, but, you know, the citizen's role in this book is also to do exposition and, um, tell history rather than show scenes of the various characters in action. And, well, and some, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, to some extent that, that echoes back to uh, uh, 20, I'm sorry, 23, 12, uh, 12 thank you. Well, well, you were, they were clearly dos passos techniques in that. And they're, they're, they're not as full out dos passos here, but you do have passages from Whitman, you do have quotations, you do have the citizens speaking. Um, there's a lot of stuff that, in effect, uh, separates some of the exposition and makes it uh, a, a, a separate section of the novel as a novel. In other words, and, and Dos Passos, I'm, I'm sure, was doing this. I'm sure he had all this information he wanted to in his USA trilogy. He wanted to have these potted biographies. He couldn't fit them into the narrative, so he made them part of the artistic structure of the novel, but not part of the narrative. And right. Some of us just fell in love with that the first time I read it. The first time I realized you were doing the same thing, I was saying it's about time because that technique is so well designed for science fiction. Yeah, well, uh, Brunner found it for Stand on Zanzibar. And there's no doubt about it. True, that's, that's true. That's, that's Dos Passos in 1969, and it works like a charm. That's why Stand on Zanzibar is so great. Um, and I did the same in 2312. It is a marvelous technique. It's basically a mm-hmm. modernist articulation of something that used to happen all the time in the 19th century, where the 19th century narrator would uh, do a lot of summary and then a lot of dramatization and go back and forth. And then the early modernists were um, disdainful of that, especially the omniscient narrator that would do summarization and so suddenly the modernist novel established this value that is quite beautifully expressed in Joyce and Wolfe and Faulkner and Hemingway where there is no narrator you have this um, nothing but scenes that tell you things and that became so dominating that to do summarization was to be look clunky and old-fashioned and science fiction was regarded as clunky and old-fashioned because they did it rather naively as if they were still in the 19th century, uh, but nevertheless, it was very useful for science fiction to have summarization and exposition because then you could get all your science into it and your background and all that good stuff, the setting. But um, the, for me, the, the crucial blow against this notion that you could never have summarization was 100 Years of Solitude by Garcia Marquez, which is nothing but summarization. Mm-hmm. And it's one, it's one of the greatest novels ever written. So at that point, the modernist, which was sort of you, you United States academic 
modernism. In other words, not the writers themselves who probably didn't care, but the the formalization of it in the university, which would be very disdainful. And also the New York literary establishment with its kind of middle brow insistence on highbrow versus lowbrow. It was, um, you know, if you were really going to be highbrow, you would never, of course, summarize anything. And then mm -hmm. Garcia Marquez killed that with an axe. Um, and ever since then, in postmodernism, you get to do what you want. And indeed, going back to the 19th century is just one ploy amongst any other ploy you want to use as a narrator, as, a, as an artist. So I've always been, well, I made the move with Red Mars. I said, huh. let's, try, let's try out 19th century technique and do uh, exposition combined with dramatized scenes. Try to be skillful about it. Try to keep things interesting, but nevertheless, not be scared of it. And uh, I've been controversial ever since. I mean, uh, for sure, Red Mars made my career and a lot of people liked it, but also it gets uh, criticized for being um, slow and brick-like, et cetera, et cetera. And, and ever since then, I've been notorious. But, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to be notorious. <laughs> Is con controversial within the science fiction world or within kind of the broader literary world? Because... Uh, a, a few weeks ago, I'm sure you didn't see it, but Jonathan, you had something on Facebook just talking about the the info dump, as they call yeah. it. And, and my and my point. Go ahead. Well, well, we did, and there's a few rather sort of testy responses to the whole idea. First of all, that you know the citizen was being disrespectful to the reader because you know the you know the reader didn't you know sort of was being sort of brushed aside and told to just skip ahead if you weren't up to coping with what I was doing, which was never the point of what was being written, but was the way it was taken. And then one or two. You know, commentators, and they won't name names, so they would be familiar to you, pop in and sort of say, well, any, you know, it, in well written science fiction, all of the exposition is internalized rather than being externalized in the way this technique does it. Which never has struck me as remotely con convincing. It's always struck me that, you know, making the exposition obvious is simply a formal choice rather than a creative flaw. But that was not a view that held sway, I can tell you. Well, I think those people are deeply wrong, and they have um, they have folded hilariously to the U.S. academic English departments of the 1950s, which no longer hold any sway anywhere except for people who are grossly behind the times. <laughs> so it's funny. To, to have people say that, oh, and of yeah. course it's a little it's a little bit Heinlein who said you got to slip these things in and not do expository lumps like those poor guys in the 1930s. Um, oh. And but the problem is that someone like Stanislaw Lem would just stand up and say, uh, or H. Bruce Franklin speaking about Stanislaw Lem would say any any uh, downplaying or a disparagement of expository lumps is an attack on what science fiction does as opposed to domestic realism. You need exposition, and it's and the world is just as interesting as people and their stupid little soap operas. So if you happen to stop and talk for 20 pages about a rock, which I am rumored to have done, although I never <laughs> did it, um, that's okay as long as it's interesting because a rock is a character. And um, and so this this um, version, there's a thing going on that I call workshop reality. It's a little bit MFA. It's a little uh -huh. bit as as a Boss magazine, 
trying to inter internalize and the turkey city lexicon was an attack on the idea that fiction was anything but a tinker toy this yeah. is the move from fiction to tech commentator where oh well of course fiction you've got eyeball flicks and you've got info dumps and you've got everything was given a disparaging name as as if right. to demonstrate that you understood and had control now, fiction is way more mysterious and powerful than that. And so these petty little attempts to try to take control <laughs> by way of a disparaging vocabulary, I've always hated. Uh, this is why the citizen bursts out. And no doubt there's a part of me that is a sarcastic New Yorker that was very <laughs> happy to talk about, I'll do an info dump on your carpet and you can move to the next chapter if you're not digging this. <laughs> You know, it was a it was definitely a release to talk about that. I can believe I was re you mentioned Heinlein is and, and, and the Heinlein kind of uh, gospel about about that. Uh, but a few months ago, I was rereading The Roads Must Roll, which has got chunks of exposition as to how these the freeways got crowded and how automobiles had to be, you know, it's it's. He completely violates his own rule again and again, at least early in his career. Sure. It, was, um, it wasn't so much him. He said it, and he wrote the door dilated and didn't explain. Right. Um, you know, the classic example. And I have actually written at length about how you need uh, a page or two about the door dilating because it would be more interesting than any of the mm -hmm. stage business that you might f fill the rest of the pages with. Um, but – um, what's bad is when it gets taken up in in writing workshops, in readers groups, in MFA programs, when it becomes some kind of a, um, a given, as if there were rules. And this is oh, yeah. what I will always object to, that fiction is, is um, it's, it's maybe got some rules and some conventions, sure, but they're way more various than this narrow view seems to think. Well, and so I'm always fighting against that. Do you think this MFA mentality, this workshop thing, can lead to a sort of strangling uniformity in science fiction that stifles its creativity and development? Oh, yes. I call it homogenization. Um, that this is very, very bad. And, and just as American domestic realism, the, the so-called literary fiction has been homogenized by the um, MFA programs. And you can see this anatomized beautifully by um, Mark McGurl in a, in a great book called The Program Era. And I read that. What he, yeah, that's a wonderful book describing what happened. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is that he talks about science fiction having escaped the dilemma of of American uh, literary fiction, and and yet Clarion, which I am involved with, and the the seepage between literary fiction into American science fiction is such that um, we tend to still uh, kiss the ass of the dominant culture as if we are some kind of paraliterature that doesn't really know what it's doing, that we're still engineers out of the 1930s and we have to do things the way the big, the big kids in the big table do. Well, it's nonsense because now everything is science fiction and the literary fiction community is all desperately trying to do science fiction one way or another because we live in a science fiction world and always literature was way, way bigger than this MFA view of things, which seeped into Asimov's mm -hmm. magazine, which is sort of the dominant style sheet for, for what American science fiction does. So I, I go around everywhere and try to say, look, you can be weirder than that um, if you want, 
And it might be dangerous, but it might pay off big by something being new and different. There's a sense in which I've got friends who are in MFA programs and a couple of friends who run them. And I, I, I've, even, I've even been to an AWP conference, which is the Association of Writing Programs, which is a huge conference. It's yes. about as big as the Modern Language Association. And there is this sense of, of, of a kind of Vogue magazine obsession with keeping up with – you know, 40 years ago – and this is partly what my girl describes in the, in the program era. If you had to write like J.D. Salinger and then after 20 years – it was Raymond Carver, and then now now they're in a position where well Carver isn't it anymore. Is it who is it? Is it Brian Evanson? Maybe he's a big big name among the MFA people these days. But there is this constant sense of trying to um, keep up with, with 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 I'm not sure what. And you're saying you're suggesting this has moved into science fiction because I see better plotted science fiction than any other kind of fiction these days. Yes. Well, I do think that uh, to the extent that science fiction stuck to its guns and kept writing about Fantastica and mm-hmm. was willing to say that reality is, is a, a weird space and, and stories can be about anything, science fiction has always been better. But, you, but there's always been a, an inferiority complex where if we, were, if we would only do it like the big pe- kids at the big table, that, that we would somehow become respectable. So that's a that's a uh, vanishing horizon and a mm. and, and a, a kind of middle brow slash highbrow culture that is no longer valid. So we don't have to pay attention to it, and it's ridiculous to try. So um, I guess what I would say is that yay for science fiction all along the line for its radical difference, and uh, so and and it can be so different that it can. It can talk about rocks for 20 pages. It can do clunk, clunky exposition. It can do info dumps. Mm-hmm. Who's going who's gonna to stop us? And why is that not more interesting than stage business or yet another dialogue between two characters that are inarticulate? Um, I think, you know, the problem of Raymond, Raymond Carver versus Joyce Carol Oates and the models that modern literary fiction have are so depleted that – what they're turning to now is our guys in disguise, uh-huh. which is uh, George Saunders, uh, Michael Chabon, our Jonathan Lethem. These are the people who are uh, doing um, MFA surfaces that underneath them are stuffed with bizarre, fantastic materials. And um, I think that that is breaking open all of the older boxes and and what I like also is the people who are completely off scale weird, like Neil Stevenson, who oh. uh, uh, makes me feel very normal in comparison. And it's a it's kind of comforting to have him out there. He's a big star. He's got a huge audience, and and yet his books don't obey any of these rules. He does what he wants, and so this is a beautiful example of how doing what you want can succeed, succeed perfectly well in amongst people who haven't been trained to think that only dramatized scenes are legitimate, which is a ridiculous point of view. I'm currently uh, working... Sure. Sure. No, can, can go John, ahead. no, you go ahead, Gary. It's fine. I was just going to say, just as, as parentheses, uh, I, was, I was thinking about Stevenson because he loves long lectures, basically. And even in, uh, in Read Me or Ream Dee, or what, it's, which is not one of his better novels because it's – but there is a scene. You mentioned describing a rock for 20 pages. There is a scene when somebody is fleeing from this Welsh Arab terrorist across uh, northern Canada, 
and they see a rock fall and they start thinking about how chaos theory can can help describe the pattern of uh, of pebbles in this and and I'm, I'm thinking okay he's the only guy who could get away with spending 20 you're you're, you're being pursued by a mad assassin and you stop to think about how this rock fall is arranged for several God, pages. Yeah, God bless him. God bless him. <laughs> I, I I love the existence of Neil Stevenson, and and I say that without having read very very much of his work. Uh, and it's partly just uh, a matter of of keeping my own brain free to do my own strangeness thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of people that I. Uh, admire the idea of whom I don't read because I think at my point in my career it's important to stay ignorant of what other people are doing so that I can be as weird as possible in my own way. Um, but but I like the idea of what he's up to and uh, anybody who will do things like that I I feel like is is an ally in the cause of saying fiction is way bigger and more mysterious than you think it is. Quit thinking you know what's going on because you don't know what's going on. Because think about it, this is something Kate Wilhelm once said. Um, fiction is one subconscious mind con- talking to another subconscious mind by way of black marks on a page. Now, oh. how weird is that? And how beautiful? And, and the, any of these kind of Turkey City lexicon efforts to, to control it or to contain it or to say, oh, we, we really understand it's just a clock, it's just a machine, is like saying the brain is just a machine. Um, it's it's wrong and and it gets in the way of feeling the magic. So uh, I I am a big, I mean literature is my religion. It's where I get my meaning out of existence. It's a very existential thing. Um, by reading enough books of enough different kinds, you combine them all together, and you get what is essentially a religious outlook on the on the world. In the sense that that's how I get my meaning. So I I hate. Um, preachers or priests or people who begin to try to establish rules. I guess I would say I'm some kind of hardcore Unitarian or Protestant or, or Buddhist saying, look, it's just you and the cosmos. There are no, there are no rules that we understand very well. Just, just write a story and see if someone else likes it and don't worry about rules. So even, you know, going to Clarion for me is a weird process because I have to go down there to this workshop that I went to that I help mm-hmm. to keep going, and I have to go down there and say, um, uh, young writers, um, don't don't take any of this as gospel because it's weirder than you think it is. <laughs> it has to be hard to tell people to be weird uh, in, in that kind of an environment. You know, to look around and say, you're working in a field that supported Cordwainer Smith or R.A. Lafferty. You don't have to just do the predictable thing. <laughs> Yes, I love I love those references. Those guys were amazing, and this is what everybody needs to know. And we have current uh, examples of people doing uh, exceptionally fine work who come in from their own angle and rethink everything. People like Ted Chang or uh, mm-hmm. Ken Liu. There's um, there's a lot of, of awesome work being done right from the center of the genre by people who are not overawed by the workshop mentality so it's not as if uh, it's a it's a difficult message to get across there's examples everywhere and of course it's an outlier to talk about cordwainer smith or or r.a lafferty but um everybody could achieve that if they if they freed their minds from the 
the toolkit. And, and, and of course, you do have to learn the toolkit. You have to um, uh, think about what the workshop teaches you and realize that actually some very obvious elements of fiction are missing from the list of the workshop list. Like, you know, you talk about, well, plot, characters, style, theme, setting, and nobody talks about pace. And so they've missed something crucial mm-hmm. right there. Um, that sits right in the middle of the process that doesn't get discussed as part of the ordinary toolkit. So there are ways to, to. Um, I mean, I've been a, an academic person. I got my PhD in literature. I went to Clarion. I've done that whole route. And so I don't want to put it down or speak as an an outsider to it. It's valuable in an, in an, as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Was it something you had to unlearn? A lot of things I had to unlearn, yes. I would say if you look at my fiction in the 80s, my fiction in the 80s is um, paying too much attention to the rules as such, the the kind of um, clarion, the workshop MFA rules. And then with Red Mars, I said, you know what? I can't tell the story I want to tell by being normal. And I had been inspired by my friend Paul Park with his uh, Soldiers of Paradise. I had been inspired by a reading in Garcia Marquez over and over. And I thought with Red Mars, I have to break rules. I have to change my style and I have to take risks and do things I'd never done before. And there is a massive difference between uh, Pacific Edge and Red Mars that marks the moment where I had to free myself. Do you, do you see an, a, a next moment like that in your career? I mean, I, I look at these books you've been doing with Tim Holman and Orbit, and they appear to be a, a next level kind of a thing for you. It's been a beautiful run with Tim Holman at Orbit. I cannot thank him enough. Essentially, that man gave me my 60s, which is a huge gift. The the way that Damon Knight gave me my 20s, which is also a huge gift, somebody giving you your 20s as an artist, um, Tim Holman has given me my 60s, and both of those decades can be way more uh, desperate and disarranged than I have had to experience because of these two great editors. And so um, with Tim, I've felt confident to try out anything I want. I, I have the Mars trilogy and the Years of Rice and Salt and the DC trilogy in my back pocket, and I've been mm-hmm. on a run since then where I have felt uh, uh, bold and and also less anxious, more willing to roll the dice and see if a plan works out. And if it doesn't, then I'll move on to the next book. So um, I've been a happy camper. Uh, I feel like I am coming to a next change that I can't sustain the pace. I'm running out of ideas. I want to write about the California Sierra Nevada in non-fictional terms, which is a huge change. And when I come back to science fiction, because I'll never leave science fiction, I'm a total patriot and it's been my life, I might start thinking about things like my book, A Short Sharp Shock. Can I maybe slim down and do um, shocking and provocative short novels? That would be my goal after finishing this year in Nevada book. Well, you'd, you'd already done things like this. The story, was, was it called Muir on Shasta? The one about John Muir on Mount Shasta, which struck mm-hmm. me as- being a kind of, um, I don't know, somewhere between nature fiction and science fiction, I guess. Uh, it, it was speculative natural history. Yes, he has a vision. Um, it's Fantastica, as Clute has taught us to call it. 
uh-huh. where he he has a vision where he's cooking on this um, in this uh, hot springs on the very top of Mount Shasta. That really happened to Muir, but um, his account of it is uh, extremely Victorian and polite because he was taking care of a companion whom he considered an idiot, but he didn't want to say so. <laughs> so I was uh, I was telling the real story of that night, and I allowed myself the luxuries of of science fictional thinking. <laughs> And I would, I would, I will certainly include that story in my Sierra Nevada book, and I'll oh, yeah. include all my my Swiss Alpine hiking misadventures, and try to write about what it what uh, matters to me about so much about being in the Sierra Nevada. I don't know what will come of it, but I I know that I will finish six books for Orbit, and then I'll give it a try, and then I'll come back to science fiction. I don't imagine it will take me a huge amount of time because I have. Huh. Lots of material built up, and I'm, you know, I, I have to think my way through matters of form, and that may be troublesome, but I certainly won't have any trouble writing sentences. I like Let me just ask one. Sorry, Sorry, no, go ahead, this, this is completely, Jonathan. I want you to go on, but this is completely trivial, and it's not trivial, but it's off the subject um, because I've been asked by two people now to go back to um, to the New York novel that there is a character in it. Uh, named Octavia's daughter. Oh yeah. And several of us think that's a tribute to a great science fiction writer. Oh yes, yes, that is my um, tribute to and and a, a little bit of a portrait of Octavia Butler. She looks um, like she she has the build of Octavia Butler, who I knew yeah. as you did. Uh, so yeah, that that's just confirms what I think a lot of readers are hoping it was. Yeah, it was un, it was a, a chance to try to imagine Octavia Butler, whom I only met twice, but they were they were great little meetings and very um, enlightening to me, inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't I didn't know her, but I did. Uh, I love her fiction, and she's a really important figure for uh, science fiction history. And mm-hmm. um, you know, she's the great Octavia Butler. So I needed. Um, I, I, she kind of um, stepped into the role of my police inspector in New York, and I thought, well, okay, this is dangerous. W- you know, would Octavia approve um, this this um, this kind of a tribute to her? And so I wanted, as I was writing it, I was always intensely nervous to think of the ghost of Octavia Butler reading those scenes over my shoulder, and would she approve <laughs> each sentence of it? <laughs> and of course, nobody can judge that except for me. No. And it was a, a little nerve wracking, but a little um, uh, uh, exhilarating as well to think um, what would Octavia do in this situation? Because she was a formidable character, as everyone knows. Um, right. But I mean, that, that's only sort of one of several such references. I mean, with Russ Rage and Delaney Dens, right. it's all sort of filtered through through the entirety of the novel. That sort of science fictional connection. Well, and also those are both New Yorkers, which Octavia Butler was an L.A. gal, but um, Russ and Delaney are both crucial New York writers, mm-hmm. and I, I should have put in the you know uh, Spinrad's uh, strategic opacity, which is so hilarious. Uh, you know, you know, Spinrad has this great concept of the strategic opacity that sits right at the heart of any science fiction story where you would have to be Einstein to produce the real thing. And so you create a little uh, verbal fig leaf to guard the, uh, the absence of the actual time travel theory or whatever it happens to be. So 
Um, I, I, I miss that. I missed uh, Gary Snyder's great Manhattan poem, uh, which ought to have been quoted in the many epigraphs. Mm. And, you know, there was just too much on my plate to remember everything. It was... Uh, it was easy to forget things. Yeah, and I guess a, a housekeeping question: New York twenty one forty is in the t- same timeline as twenty three twelve? Oh no, no! <laughs> I would never say that. No, none <laughs> of my novels. So, but, yeah. No, none of my novels fit with each other. They have different histories. They have different future histories leading to them. And all I can say is that I I typically have um, similar concerns and attitudes so that there's a rough inaccurate inconsistent future being shaped out by my fiction but none of them will connect to the others in any good way yeah well somebody out there is doing a phd dissertation right now which is making those very connections so i'm afraid you're out of luck stan <laughs> yeah well they will they will be uh, um, thinking god this guy was so sloppy <laughs> Well, I have to say, locking it all down strikes me as suffocating and not very interesting. I mean, it's what Asimov did ultimately, where everything got you know clicked together in, in the least inspiring way possible, rather than yep. you know, being allowed to be organic and open in their own things, which was never to the great advantage of the work he was he was producing. I didn't think. No, I think he was doing a thing that was based on what Heinlein did with his more planned out future history. Mm. And this was basically, maybe it was a John W. Campbell suggestion for both of them. Um, The idea that all your short stories, and especially in the 40s, that you could build a grand future history, that's a pretty good idea. But it's a 1940s idea of people who are working fast over a period of only about 10 years if you think about what I've done, if I was to try to hold on to, if I was trying to make my stories fit with, say, Eisinger, The Memory of Whiteness, from mm. the early 1980s when I wrote those, well, it just wouldn't work. Uh, and there's so much more that we know that we didn't know back then that it uh, causes me to think again and to change my mind. And I want to be free to do that. So um, I've never made any attempt, and every once in a while I will make little jokes, like many of the AIs in my books are named Pauline, and um, sometimes people will refer, I think in 2312, people refer to um, a scene out of Red Mars, which implies rather you know, hubristically that people in 2312 have just read Red Mars, or rather mm-hmm. than it happened, because clearly Mars has a completely different future in mm. 2312 did in the Mars trilogy. So they have to be referring to the book rather than to the reality of inside the book. So that's a little crazy. And I've tried to reduce these kind of games um, and not play them too obsessively because it's a little bit too much. It's a little too self-indulgent. There is probably what something that might serve as a, a closing question because we've been we're, we're past the top of our hour, and that is you made passing comment in conversation that New York twenty one forty is the f- is the fifth of what sound like six novels for Orbit. Is that correct? Uh, the fourth. Fourth. The fourth. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it go. It, it starts with twenty three twelve, and then it's uh, Shaman and Aurora and New York twenty one forty. I'm in the middle of a novel about uh, the idea of China taking over the moon or at least establishing a a big colony on the moon in the very near future, which I think they could do tomorrow if they wanted. 
Mm. Um, and that one is I'm having a tremendous time with. It's a kind of a chase novel. It's very much about China. I went to China last fall, mm-hmm. and it blew my mind, and, and I'm deeply confused, and I'm comforting myself with the idea that everybody on Earth is confused about Chinese, China, including all the Chinese. So um, it's a novel about that. And then there will be a sixth one, and then I'll be done for with these contracts. A curiosity, it's, it's, it's a novel more about China than about the moon? Well, I, Tim Holman asked me about that, and I would reckon that it's about 50-50. But if you really had to choose, it's more about China. And then the moon is just great also in and of itself. And so, so I've been avoiding everybody's moon novels. <laughs> so uh, I was going to say, like there, there, there's, there's some good moon novels coming out now, and I'm glad to see the moon is back on the table. Yeah, I, I read the Kessel novel because he's a good friend, and that's a great novel. Um, and I and I had to read it, but I've avoided the Ian McDonald moon novels because Ian McDonald is a superb novelist. He's one of my favorites to read, and I think Dervish House is one of the best novels of the last, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, ever. So I don't want to read Ian's uh, moon novels whilst I'm pondering the situation <laughs> myself. Um, I will read them after I'm done. Yeah. Well, I should, well we should look forward to that. Good. Yeah, we will. Yeah. But for now, uh, I think we should say thank you very much for taking the time to join us, Dan. It's been a great pleasure talking to you about New York 2140. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, you guys. And, you know, sort of hopefully we'll cross paths sometime again in the future. And for everybody out there, of course, New York 2140 is available out there in the world and you should seek it out. I recommend it highly. I know Gary does. So thank you again, Stan. Yes, you bet. And Gary, until next time. This has been the Good Street Podcast.